Psalm 145 is where we're at. We've been there all morning. Uh, Pastor Dave read it. Uh, Pastor Scott read it. I think it's in your bulletin. And that is where our focus will be. We're going through uh, some of the psalms together, probably through the month of August, until we get to the fall. And so I wanted to do Psalm 145, because if you're keeping up with the reading that we do as a church family in the Old Testament, Psalm 145 is one that we would have read this week uh, together. So it's one that you would have uh, seen and, and read and maybe be a little used to it by now. It is interesting, though. Um, I remember this practice that we did in college. I can't remember which, uh, I went to a lot of different schools. I can't remember which one it was at, to be honest with you. Uh, but we were uh, assigned to read a passage of Scripture. And I think it was a passage of Scripture uh, where we are told not to store up treasures for ourselves on earth, but in heaven, where neither rust nor moth can destroy. And the exercise that they wanted us to do is they wanted us to go to different locations within the town and to read uh, that passage of Scripture uh, and see if it, if it changed any, uh, just, just because of where we were. And so we were in, I know where it was, it was up, uh, it was up I went to school on 12 Mile Road up in Farmington Hills. And so we were told to uh, go to a very affluent neighborhood. And so we drove to this very affluent neighborhood, huge, huge homes, and we parked our car, and we were told just to read and meditate on that while we sat there. Well, then we were told to go to a part of town that didn't have huge homes. It's just kind of uh, rough, and to read it there. And then to ask the question, why does this hit different depending on uh, location? And it was an interesting exercise. It was something to think about because the Word of God does not, does not change based on location. But it does have an impact then on what we, what we think because you could get pretty judgmental in that affluent neighborhood thinking, well, these people aren't doing what this says, which isn't necessarily correct, right? Which isn't necessarily the right way to read it. Uh, and then you could go to a part of town that, uh, maybe didn't have the same size homes, and to think, well, I think these, things, these people might have it a little better. Uh, if there are Christians here, they'll be better Christians than the ones living in the big neighborhood. I say that because as Pastor Dave was reading Psalm 145, and then Pastor Scott was reading Psalm 145, to be honest with you, that is not how I read Psalm 145. If you noticed, uh, I was listening, and they didn't read it wrong, but as Pastor Scott was reading his, it was very contemplative. He read it very quiet. He slowed down as he went through it. When I read it, I read it as loud. I read it as, as fast because as we approach this psalm and look at this psalm, this is actually the last psalm that David wrote, the last psalm that King David wrote, and it sets us up for the end of the psalms, of which the rest of the psalms you will see are all praise. And this is a psalm of praise that David writes for us here. And if I'm being Honest, I think it is one of the harder psalms to relate to, at least for me. Maybe, maybe you're a little different, but for me it's the hardest to relate to because as I read psalms of lament, it's easy for me to say, yeah, life stinks. I don't know if you're like that, but I can't be. It's easy to read psalms where David seems to be crying out to God for something because I can understand what that's like. When life is hard and difficult, we, we cry out to God and ask for help. We look to him. I can understand the Psalms where uh, David or one of the authors of the Psalms is repenting because it seems every day I struggle with sin. And so I know what that looks like and what that, what that feels like. 
struggle in life seems to come kind of naturally. But for me, what doesn't come naturally is just downright praise. And it can be hard just to stick with, with praise, right? It's like if we said, we're just going to come today and we're just going to praise God. Eventually, somebody's going to raise their hand and say, well, could you pray for me because I'm sick, right? Could you pray for me because of this? It's hard for us to just stick with praise of God. But yet, what David shows us this morning as we look through this psalm is that God is well-deserving of our praise. David here takes God, and for who he is, for what he has done, he says, you alone are worthy of praise and always worthy of praise. Now, we don't know the situation David found himself when he wrote this psalm. It really doesn't matter. Because the praise of God in this psalm is true. God is worthy of our praise simply because God is God. That's why he's worthy of it. Not because we had a good week, not because the week coming up we think is going to be good. No, God is worthy of praise simply because he is God. Yep, at times the only, there are, defi- there are definitely times in our life too that we praise God because of, you know, uh, situations in our life, things that are going on. I'm sure all of us have that in our life, things that we could think about right now, no doubt, that we would praise him for. Yet David stays away from this sum in the psalm, as we'll see, and he praises God again because of who he is, because of what he's done. And as we gather this morning here today, as we gather un- under the banner of Christ, because that's what we are, we are Christian people, we have been saved by God's grace because of Jesus, because of his work, because of what he has done, we get to come here this morning to praise God, understanding the lengths that he has went through to save you and to save somebody like me. And so we get to praise him. And then in light of Christ and, and what he's done, we can all, all who of us who are saved can gather and, and worship him because of salvation. But then we can praise him because we have a better understanding of the individual praises that we have of maybe you had a good report at the doctor or maybe things are going well at work or in your family you've enjoyed some good family time or whatever it might be, you can praise him but in light of Christ and what he has done for us, which then again helps us with our, with our praise. And so I'm going to read Psalm 145 again, but I'm going to read it in sections and we're going to look at these different sections together uh, this morning. Verses, verses 1 through 3. And in these verses, David talks about God's goodness. He says, I will extol you, extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. It's, no, it's interesting how when David starts this, multiple times David says, I will. He makes it very personal. He says, he says I will praise you. And so we see, again, the, uh, the personal aspect of David's praise. And he recognizes here his need and his desire as well to praise God himself every day. You see, David is the king here, and he calls God the king. He recognizes that uh, God is much bigger than him. God is much uh, greater and grander than him. And even though David is the king of the land, he, he's not telling other people at this point, you need to praise him. He's recognizing the fact that I need to praise him. It's my job to praise him. It's, it's my job to worship him and to, and to honor him and to adore him. And so David says that of saying, I will do this. I will praise him. I will worship him. 
And he notices that this is an everyday experience. This is something that needs to happen always. He'll go on and say that a little later in the psalm. If there was anybody who could expect it to be done for him, it would be King David. Right as he sits on his throne, he could have people come in and say, I need you guys to play songs to God. I need you guys to worship him. He could have sat there and let them do that. But no, he knows I need to do that. It's me that has to worship him. And so he understands that God deserves this praise from his people every day. And as he's talking about this and saying, I need to praise you and I need to worship you, David says something in Psalm 3 that we kind of just sung about with Behold Our God. He says, Great is the Lord and greatly to praise, and his greatness is what? It's, it's unsearchable. <laughs> greatness is an interesting thing. If, if you listen to sports talk radio or you listen to politics, uh, one of the things that gets talked about is greatness all the time. Who's the best ever? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest leader? Right? Who, who was the best president that we ever had? And we could, we could sit and debate that, and we could sit and talk about that. We could talk about the greatness of those individuals and how they led you can do it again with athletes. You can take statistics. You can take uh, results. You can take all types of things. And people will come up with different scenarios for who is the greatest in whatever sports you want to talk about. And, I mean, again, if you do the sports talk radio thing, it can drag on forever and ever. Right? But we, we like that. Uh, we love that. We, we love to talk about those things and, and to debate about those things. And I think one of the reasons that we like that is because we can relate on a certain level to all of those people. Even the greatest of leaders or the greatest of athletes, uh, we, can, we can sit and say, well, I know what it feels like to, to hit a ball and get a hit. Right? I, I know how that kind of goes. Maybe you haven't done it at their level. You, you haven't done it at their level. But you've done it at some level, and so you can understand it somewhat or Maybe in leadership, maybe you've had the opportunity to lead in some way at work or in your home or at church or wherever it might be. And, and so you, you can understand some of that. You can see the qualities that makes them the best and say, I, I think I have some of those qualities. You can relate in some sort of way. And so we enjoy talking about greatness. But when it comes to God, David says something that's absolutely accurate here when he says his greatness, it's unsearchable. I think that's why we find it so hard to praise. I know that's why I find it so hard to praise. Because we have a God who we worship, and I cannot fathom his perfection. I can't for a minute fathom his holiness because I'm, I'm nowhere near that. I'm, I'm not anything close to that. I, there's no thoughts that I have on a regular basis that are completely pure. It doesn't exist in my head, and it doesn't in yours either. And so David understands that about himself, and as he's trying to praise God and worship God, he wants to do it correct, but he cries out there at the very beginning of this psalm saying, God, your greatness is completely unsearchable. I can't even begin to understand it. I can't even begin to fathom it. Or you think of other things about God, his, his beauty. His beauty is far above all other beauty that you could ever see, know, or understand. Yes, we can maybe catch little glimpse of beauty in this world. We can see beauty in other individuals. We can see beauty in creation. Right? We can see beauty in all different types of things in this world, but it doesn't even compare for a second to the beauty of our God. Right? And so 
We think then about his understanding. We think about how he's all-knowing. We, we think about all of these qualities of God, these characteristics of God, and it's just, it's just beyond us. It's beyond our capabilities. I know we've talked about this before, but when you start to think about how God is eternal, he always has been. That is just, I mean, it makes your mind want to blow up when you think about it. We can't, it's almost like we get to the end of our brain and it's like, no, no go from here. You're done. You're out. And it's, it's almost frustrating. But we have this God that says is unsearchable, David says, but yet I don't want to move on before also us realizing this. This God who's unsearchable has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's made himself known to us by giving us the Bible, by giving us his word. This, this God who's unsearchable, and to be honest, doesn't deserve to be searched after. We, we shouldn't know anything about him. Who are we to be able to know him? He has made himself known to us so that we can read and know about him, so that we can see his love in the person of Jesus and understand what he has done, what great lengths he has gone through to show his love to us, to the ones who don't compare so it's amazing to think that this unknowable, mighty God has made himself known to you and to I so that we actually can gather here this morning and worship a God that we know because he has shown himself to us. Oh, there's still a lot of great mysteries, right? There's still a lot of things uh, we don't fully understand. We, we haven't been able to see him maybe face to face. There's all these different things, but he's given us enough to know him and to love him and to praise him. And so we need to fall in line with David and be willing to say, I will extol you, my God and my King. I will praise you forever. Right? You alone are worthy of my worship. And so we have to be making sure that we do that. You know, uh, this is a side note. I didn't think about this. But sadly, one of the things I hear with people in my generation you know, where I'm at in my age is they have kids and they're starting to think about going to church and when you ask them why, they say, for my kids. Isn't that a sad reason? You think it's just your kids who need church? <laughs> you need to praise God. You need to worship God. You need to experience God and to love God and to know His love that He has for you. To think that it's just something for your kids, well, that's, that's sad. That's a sad state to be in. Well, David goes on in verses 4 through 7. And it says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In this section, David, he, he now includes us in the praising of God, doesn't he? He says, all the generations will tell of the works of God and praise him. So it's not just about David anymore. It's about all the people of God. From generation to generation. And now, with this in our mind, we instantly go to the, I think we go to the great things that God has done for us individually, right? He says, we'll commend your works to another. And when we read something like that, God's wondrous works, what do we often do? We often go to ourselves and we think, man, God, hopefully you think this way, God's done good things in my life. I think it does us some good sometimes to sit back and to reflect on the good things that God has done for us as individuals. I'm sure he's done plenty for you even this week. 
We could think about it collectively as a church family. We could think of all the good things God has done for our church throughout the years. Right? We can think of all the, all the people who've come in and out of this family. And God has, for many of them, saved them through the preaching or the teaching in this church or allowed them to grow in their relationship with Him. God, that, that's great things that God has done for us that we didn't deserve, but he, He's done that for 85 years now in this church family. But again, if you get more on a personal level, you can think of the times that God has provided for your family. All right, well, God has taken care of you mentally, physically, spiritually. Right, and these are good things to reflect on. These are good things to, to ponder. And this is what David is kind of talking about here with the generations. But while all of this is good and it should be remembered, yet the mighty works of God that are being talked about here are much bigger than just me recovering from a cold, right? Or, or me getting more in my paycheck than maybe I'd hoped for, which is going to help my family out a little bit more. Again, those are good things and things to pray for and things to praise God for. But I think what David is getting at here is he's, he's talking about the fact of how God came and dwelt among us. Again, we get to reflect on Christ. We get to look back to what he has done. And when you talk about the mighty and the wondrous works that God has done, God has provided for us, his people, what? He's provided for us salvation. So that now when God looks at me, Tim, a sinner, he doesn't see me, Tim, a sinner. He sees me, Tim, his child, who he loves, who now is perfect. Why? Not because I don't sin. I'm perfect because Christ was perfect for me. And that's what he sees. This is the mighty, wondrous works that we need to be thinking about and re reflected on. A salvation that I did not deserve. A salvation that simply you don't deserve. That you didn't deserve. But yet this is where we get to God's great grace in verses 8 through 9. Right? Look at verses 8 and 9. These are some of the most grace-filled verses in all of Scripture. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, I've got to ask you, who, who that you know is left out of verse 8 and 9? When you read verse 8 and 9, who does it exclude? Nobody. <laughs> nobody is excluded from this. And so when we, we see the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Isn't it nice to be around people who are gracious? Uh, do you have anybody like that in your family or, or maybe some friends or, I don't know, a coworker? It, it's so nice to be around those people or, or people who seem to be slow to anger. We all know growing up, right, you had, that, you had that grandparent that was not slow to anger ever. I mean, no matter what you did, it was like, bam, right away, you were, you were hit. But then a lot of us, I know I had this, I had that grandparent where was slow to anger all the time, right? At least for me on the one side. Tim never did any wrong. I mean, it was awesome and great. The other side, quick to get yelled at. This side, not too quick to get yelled at. And guess what grandparent Tim liked to go to? Yeah. 
It felt good to go to that one. This is the God that we serve. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but some of you, some of you desperately need to remember this truth or to know it for the very first time. There's people who are afraid to walk into a church building because they say, th- they say silly things, and I know they don't mean it, but they say, you know, that the, the ceiling will fall on them or lightning might strike them or whatever. That's not the God that we have. That's, that's not the God who created you. The God who created you is slow to anger. And you say, well, I need you to prove this to me. How can you prove this to me? Very easy. Babies are born. It wouldn't be deserved. We all deserve death. Right away. It shouldn't, we shouldn't have life at all. But the fact that you're breathing, the fact that I'm breathing shows me God is so patient and so kind and so gentle and so gracious. Not just to his own people, which we're going to get to in a minute. Not just to those who have been saved by his grace, but to all of creation. God is gracious and kind and merciful. Isn't he? Over and over and over again. And we who have been saved by God's grace, we should know this greater than anybody else. Because we know at one time we were enemies of God. And now because of him, we are his children How long did God go? I want you to think about this if you are a Christian. How long did God go to let you live in your rebellion? How long did God go to let you live in your arrogance against him? For some, maybe it was seven years, eight years, ten years, thirteen years. For others of you, though, you were saved when you were in your thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. Aren't you thankful for God's kindness and patience with you what if God had your patience (laughs) what if God had your self-control when it came to that I bet you wouldn't have made it seven years 12 years whatever it might be but God is loving and kind yet the Bible tells us that God knew you before you were ever born he knew you and he loved you and Christ died for you. You know, at one point, Moses gets to talk to God quite often. And in Exodus 34, uh, God is going to pass by Moses. And I want to read this section. It's in Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, because we see God walking before Moses, but God is also speaking, and he is describing himself. And I want you to see how God describes himself, because there's a lot of ways that God could describe himself, but this is how God chose to describe himself to Moses and to us this morning. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It's interesting that when God wants to describe himself, the way he describes himself is as steadfast, as patient, as kind. Uh, That's not words you hear people describe themselves as. 
When you fill out a resume for a company, I bet very, very little you'll find on a resume, I'm, I'm steadfast, patient, and kind. Because when an employer reads that, you think, this guy is lazy, boring, and needs to work a little harder, it sounds like. That's how it comes across. But this is how God speaks of himself. This is how God draws people into him, doesn't he? I'm steadfast, I'm loving, I'm patient, and I'm kind. This is the God that we have pictured here that we are to praise every day. And this is, this is what we must sing out. This is what it said at the end of verse 7. It said, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. These are the, these are the things that we as a church gathered should be singing to God and to praising him is, is this work that he has done, of his, his patience, his loving kindness, the fact that he would send Jesus, his only son, to, to die for us sinners who have rebelled against him, but yet in his love and in his grace and his mercy, he has called us to be his own. These are the things to sing about. Again, I don't mean to minimize the personal little things in your life that God has done for you, which is great, which some of you, you could say, God has healed me of cancer. That's astounding and amazing. But it's not even close to the fact that Christ died for you and saved you. And so for us to come and maybe sing about, again, those things that he's done for me. Oh, he, he, he's helped me with my money or whatever it might be. That's so small compared to the wondrous deeds he has done for us by showing us how he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and kind. These are the songs we should never get sick of singing, understanding that God has saved a wretch like me. That should never get old. We should never get past that. We should never get beyond that. There's no greater thing to sing about. And so these are the truths I think that David is telling us to sing and to praise God for. Well, as we get to verses 10 through 13, let's read it. God start, or David here starts to praise God for his glorious kingdom. He says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. As we come together to praise God this morning, we must reflect on the kingdom of God and Again, how I've been mentioning for some of us this morning, how he's made us a part of it by saving us through the blood of his son, Jesus. When you think about history of mankind, there have been some great kingdoms, but those kingdoms have all come and then they go, don't they? Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. We can think of the great empires that we've studied about in school or maybe that some of you love to read about in your spare time in history. There have been some great leaders. There have been nations that we would think would never fail and would never fall. But when we look at it today, what do we look at? We look at ruins. We look at old buildings that are collapsing. It's not in place anymore. It's not there. Yet this kingdom that we've been brought into as Christians is a kingdom that lasts forever. Think about it. That's what David is saying here. There will always be the people of God. Always. There's never going to be a time when the people of God do not exist. God will not allow that to happen because God's kingdom is forever. Oh, we may come and go, you and I, 
We may fall. This church could come and go and fall. Maybe there'd be a time there's no Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, but there will definitely never be a time when there is not a kingdom of God. And there will never be a time for you and I who are part of the kingdom of God of where we will be told, guess what, you're no longer a part of the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that stands and will always stand. And so what we have is we have God's grace constantly being poured out on us. But we also see here that God's grace is constantly going to be poured out until Christ returns. People will still be coming to know the Lord. People will still be saved all the way until Christ returns. Why? Because God's kingdom is forever. And it's a, it's a glorious kingdom. And that's what David is saying here. Well, let's move on to verses, well, the end of verse 13. I didn't read the end all the way through 16. It says, The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In this section, David continues his praise. But here in verses 15 and 16 particularly, what he does is he reminds us again of God's grace and his kindness to all of creation. Not just those in his kingdom, but all of creation, all people everywhere. And this is how good God is. Even those who continue to reject him. Those who continue to mock him. What does he do? He still provides for them. He still lets them eat. He still lets them breathe. I was watching an interview from an actor uh, this week, a little bit. I don't even remember who it was. It was a little older. But he's a, a non-believer. And I don't know who was interviewing him. I don't know if it was a Christian who was interviewing him or what. But he was asked, Let, let's say, they said, let's, let's say that when you die, you do stand before God. He said, I know you don't believe in God, but let's say that you do stand before God. What are you, what are you going to say to him? And the guy just very blatantly said, who do you think you are to create a world like this? I don't for a second want to be with you. I don't want to be by you. That guy who uttered that, who when I say something like that to people, to church folk, what do they think? They think, pfft. I'm never watching that guy's movie. That guy can just get out of here. That's because we're not slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That guy who uttered those words, God still allows to walk, to breathe, and to live. God still gives him opportunity every second he's alive to fall on his face before God and repent. And if that man would do that, guess what? God would save him instantly. God in his love would pour out his grace on that repentant sinner. Even all the harsh things he said and done, God would love him and save him. This is the goodness of God over his creation. Again, compare that to how we handle people like that. Sadly, we, we don't spread God's grace and love, do we? We want to ridicule those people. We we want to prove them wrong. We want to show them how stupid they really are. And we have different means for that. Sometimes it's face-to-face -face discussions. Sometimes it's uh, on the internet and different ways like that. But I don't know if that reflects the character of our God. 
I do think there's some reflection we should do as Christians as we read verses like verses 14 through 16. And again, I know this is a, this is a psalm of praise, and we are to do this. We are to be praising God because he cares for all of creation. But I think a lot of us this morning, if we're honest, we should probably repent of the sin of the fact that we feel actually those people don't deserve God's love and kindness. That the world would actually be a lot better if God would just maybe kill those people. Let's just get rid of those people. It would make a lot of stuff better. And we have to be careful with that. Because God in his providence has us where we are and we still see God showing great restraint because of his patience and his steadfast love for all of creation. And so really what it should drive us to do as the church is we should be saying things like, if God hasn't sent Christ to come back, then what I should be doing in return is I need to be telling people about the gospel. Because obviously, that's what he still wants to be done. Obviously, there's still, there's still people who need to hear about him. And so, if he's abounding in this steadfast love and showing this great patience, then who am I? Like Jesus would say, cast your stone if you're without sin. Who am I? And so while maybe I see their sin as a little more heinous than my sins, I maybe need to be a little more loving and kind to these people. Maybe I should share with them the love of Christ. I, was, I, I, I reflected on this as I was reading this. My mind went to Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? We remember, yeah, he goes in the fish's guts and all that, right? He runs away, all these different things. But do you remember Jonah's attitude after he went? He goes to Nineveh. He shares the truth of God to Nineveh. And it's not even a good sermon. <laughs> it's, it's repent. I mean, it's like, you're going to be destroyed. That's what he goes through the town saying. It's not very good. It's not very friendly. But what happens? The whole stinking town repents, it says. The whole town repents. And we, what do we have in Jonah? We have Jonah then off on a hill. What's he doing? Crying and whining. And his reason is this. It says in Jonah 4.2, he says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew what? What does he say? That you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a church planter? I feel called to Monroe County to start a church. And he starts the church, and all of a sudden his church has 120,000 people in it. Everybody in Monroe County is there. Everybody in Monroe County has been saved. And he goes into his study and he says, Lord, this is why I said I should never have gone to Monroe County. I knew you would do this. I knew you would do this. You would save every single one of them stinking people who should have died. But I knew you would do this. I think a lot of times we reflect more the heart of Jonah than we do the heart of God. Or maybe that's just my own conviction. Maybe you're not that way. But David praises God in verses 14 through 16 for his goodness over all creation, providing for those who even are not his own. And then we get to verses 17 through 20. 
which focuses on God's people. He says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. David here goes on to praise God for his perfect justice. We have to notice that in these verses, there are those who God gives mercy to, but in the end, there are others, it says, who will be destroyed. There, there's not some sort of universalism that we can hold on to. I know when we look at verses 8 and 9, there are some who would want to take verses 8 and 9 and teach, listen, everybody's going to get God's grace. See, it says this in verse 8 and 9. But they fail to keep reading the psalm. There are those who are going to be destroyed, and this is because God is perfect in his justice. You see, David says here, it's those who call on him, those who fear him, those who love him. This, these are the people who then receive these blessings of God. And we know today that in Christ all this is possible. It is Jesus who came and loved the Father perfectly because if the standard, if the standard there is uh, the Lord is righteous always, kind of always work. The Lord is near to all who call on him. I know then I'm in trouble because my prayer life isn't exactly the best. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. You wake up every day fearful of God? Probably not. The Lord preserves all who love him. Can you really say that you have a love that is completely uninterrupted when it comes to your relationship with God? No, you don't. And I don't either. But this is the good news of the gospel, is it not? We know that Christ has done all of this for us. We rest in Jesus. We take his yoke upon us because he has finished this work. He loves the Father perfectly. He fears the Father perfectly. He knows the Father perfectly. And the Bible tells me that he has done this for me. And that is why we have verses that say there is only one way to the Father, through Christ, through Jesus. When Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Why is that? It's because he's the only one who's ever done all those things perfectly. And so he's the only one that this can be granted through to be a part of the kingdom of God. I can't do it on my own. There's no other name that can save me. My parents can't do it. My grandparents can't do it. My friends cannot do it. The only name that can save is Jesus. And so you might be sitting here this morning and thinking, you know, this church thing is, is good for me, but I'm okay that it's not good for other people. And so you have neighbors who are, I don't know, of, of different faith maybe or of, of no faith, but maybe what you're thinking in your head right now is, that's fine because it's good for them. It's bringing them to God just on a different route, maybe. Maybe it's through the Muslim faith or, or Jehovah's Witness or somebody. I don't know. Maybe you know somebody, somebody in these things, and, and maybe that's what you're pondering and what you're thinking. I would warn you, that's, that's not true. That's not true. There's only one name that can save us, and it's the name of Jesus. It's trusting in him fully. And sadly, there's many people who've been trying other ways to get to God, and they sadly will face the end of verse 20. But the wicked will be destroyed. 
You say, yeah, but my neighbor's a good guy. He seems to be a good person. Listen, no amount of goodness that he thinks he can do could ever, could ever clear him of the sin that he has in his life. That is why we should have a heart on fire to share this good news that we have. It's not, it's not because I've, I'm so smart that I finally figured it all out and I want to share with everybody how wise I am. That's not, that's not, this, that's not our approach. That's not our attitude. It's, it's, our attitude is God in his loving kindness for some reason saved me through the blood of Christ. He's opened my eyes to the truth of what this world is all about and what is going on and I want to tell you about it. You need to know this. God loves you too. He sent his son to die for you. Will, will you believe this? Will you, will you trust in this? And because of the promises that we have here, there will be some, because God's kingdom will go forever, there will be some who will say, yes, yes, I, I believe in that, I trust in that, and we praise God for that. But there will be others, we need to know, who will say No. And they are the ones at the end of verse 20, sadly. And yes, it should break our heart, but we also know that that's their choice. That's their decision. And so in the end, as we get to verse 21, David ends the way that maybe we should wake up every morning. And I think the way we should go to bed every night. David ends with a prayer of praise to God. He says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. The praise of God always on our lips is what David is saying there. The book of James says that our tongues are a dangerous weapon. The book of James tells us that a small little rudder can move a ship and our tongues are like that, that it can really impact not just our life, but it can impact the life of those around us. And it's interesting because long before James wrote that, David wrote this, saying, God, help my tongue to always be of praise to you. I think that's a good prayer for us to focus on in the morning. Saying, God, let me be like David. Help my mouth to speak of the praise that only you deserve and help me to be quick to do that today. I'm sure some of you are like me. I am not good at doling out compliments. I am horrible at it. There's a lot of people who do a lot of good things, and I just walk right on by it. I don't mean anything bad by it. It's just, I don't know. It's just, I don't give myself compliments that often. It's just not part of who I am. But I really like being around people who give compliments. Those are people you want to be with, right? And when you, when you look at the church, and maybe some of you are like this this morning. I know I was. I was standing in the back and I'm watching cars park and I was thinking, I remember a time when that parking lot was full. Maybe you come in here and you're like, I remember a time when the pews were, were full, you know, and you start to think about it. You start to wonder, you know, what, what's going on? And I start to think sometimes, well, maybe, maybe my lips aren't very attractive at times because I don't speak of the praise of the Lord enough. You know, maybe... You know, you can put blame in a lot of different places. Culture's going bad, all this different sort of stuff, which is, which is true, no doubt. But maybe we as Christians don't praise God enough. We don't, we don't let his name be on our tongue and on our lips enough. And the sweetness 
of God so that people see, man, they have a God that they love. They have a God that seems to really care for them. And who knows what doors that would open with our neighbors and with our coworkers and with our friends and with our, with our family. If instead of complaints rolling off our tongues all the time, maybe it was more praise, more worship of the God that I serve. So when, when somebody asks you tomorrow, inevitably, when you get to work, well, how was your weekend? You know, I mean, what's your response going to be? I don't say this judging you because I'm the same way. You know, we, we just got back from vacation. And you can ask almost everybody who's asked me this question, how was your vacation? My response was, it's fine. Well, what a horrible way to say it. We had a great time. It was awesome. It was warm. We had water. We had food. Right? We had our family. We laughed. Got mad at each other. We did all kinds of things. But it was fun. And it was great. But a lot of people would walk away from a conversation with me thinking, don't go on vacation with him. Wow. Right? And I just think, I wish I could be more like David here. Praying this prayer, even about the goodness of God. Of how was your weekend? My weekend was glorious. Well, why? What made it so good? I woke up. God blessed me with my family. I have a home. You know, we got to, we got to go swimming. Or This week, we, we went to the fair as a family and got to eat until we threw up or whatever, ride rides. And all this is because God is good to us. God has provided for me another day to see the sun, another day to breathe. Man, isn't God so good to us? Look at the love that he's shown us. See, when we start talking that way and we start acting that way, it'll be interesting to see how people start responding. Right? It'll be interesting to see what God does in the midst of our church family where maybe some of those lost souls who we've been praying for all of a sudden want to know a little more because it seems like God has done such great things in your life. The way you talk about him is so appealing. The things that you have said about him are you say when you gather as a church and what God is doing with your church family and the people who are in your life and how you love each other. I don't have that in my life. How did you get that in your life? How did you find that? Well, let me tell you about it. It starts with a man named Jesus. Right? And then you get this opportunity to share the truth. As we close this morning, I, I hope that you'll be able to praise God. I hope you'll be able to be like David and say that, God, help me to praise you each and every day. Help me to bless your holy name forever and ever. I don't mean for this sermon to be weighty. I don't mean for you to walk away saying, I'm just horrible at praising. That's not the purpose of this sermon at all. I hope you don't feel that way. The way I want you to leave here in a little bit is recognizing God deserves our praise, and so let's just do that. Let's do it the best that we can. Let's honor him, worship him, and glorify him with our lives. And then let's trust that he will work in the midst of that. 
and be thankful that he's allowed us to be a part of his kingdom and that it's a kingdom that'll never fade and that I'll never be kicked out of. Let's bow together. Let's pray, and then after prayer, we'll sing one song, and then we'll close, all right? God, we thank you for your word. God, help us to praise you. God, you alone are worthy of praise. We are so quick to dole out praise to ourselves. We're so quick to dole out praise to uh, those who are affluent, those who seem to have a set of skills we wish we had, whatever it might be. God, help us to praise you. God, we cannot be you. It's hard for us to fathom you. Your greatness is unsearchable. But God, yet we know you because you've made yourself known to us. Jesus Christ has come and wrapped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. Lived a life that I should have lived but could not. He lived a perfect life. And then died on a cross for my sins. And so God, we praise you for that. We praise you, God, that we get to rest in the accomplished works of Christ. We don't, we don't have to hear a message this morning that says, now, if you will go out and praise God every day, he will love you. No, you love us where we are. And God, that is what causes us to praise you. And so help us to do that. Help us to honor you with our words, with our actions. God, as we get ready to sing this last song, I pray that it would glorify you and only you. God, I pray that some of us this morning, maybe for the first time in a while, would be able to sing this song honestly, worshiping you only, reflecting on the good that you've done in our lives personally, but also what you have done for your kingdom, for your people, how you've known us before creation. You knew our sin, you knew our rebellion but you loved us enough to draw us in. So God, as we sing this last song, help us to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.